Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the Coger Center Arts Roundup. Welcome back to the Coger Center Arts Roundup podcast. Our special guest this week is Brooklyn Mack, ballet dancer. Uh, can you talk to us about uh, how you got started in your career, Brooklyn? You're from the Columbia area. Um, you, you became a professional dancer. That's a thing that doesn't happen just overnight. So can you talk to us about how you got started as a dancer um, locally here in town? Yeah, so I was born in Columbia, um, raised in Elgin, South Carolina. Um, so it was, it was pretty unlikely that I would become a professional ballet dancer, I would say. But uh, fate would have it that um, my school took a field trip to see a ballet gala that was for a great cause. And that gala happened to be Life Chance, a gala of the stars. I was about 12 years old or so and uh, not, none too excited about going to see a gala of ballet, of all things. But um, I had to go. I got there, I watched this gala, and I was, uh, I was actually pretty blown away in all my preconceived notions about what ballet was uh, were completely shattered. Pretty much everything that I had uh, thought about ballet I'd got from satire on, I don't know, Saturday morning cartoons and, and different sitcoms making fun of it with big hairy guys in tutus with their hands on their head twirling around. But obviously what I saw was nothing like that. There was, I saw amazing athletes flying through the air, doing things that didn't look like they should be humanly possible. Similar to things that I would see in a Kung Fu flicks where they were using wires, <laughs> but they didn't have any wires. So I was like, wow, okay, this is, this is completely different. This is actually not that lame. <laughs> Had you been a dance before, or was this your first sort of experience in the, as an audience member at dance? This was my first real experience seeing real ballet in my, in my life at that point. And upon watching it, upon watching these, these, these uh, dancers, you know, jump seemingly through the roof and do all these spins and things, it recalled a really um, old memory that I had in the recesses of my mind of a football documentary that I had watched when I must have been all of six or seven. And there was a moment in that documentary where the uh, coaches that were being interviewed and the players were talking about ballet. And at that time, um, you know, it didn't make any sense to me as to why they were talking about ballet and, you know, how it was helping the athletes and whatnot. Because all I knew about ballet was that it was, you know, for, for sissies, for lack of a better word. But upon seeing, what it really was, I saw how there could actually be a strong correlation between what these athletes of God, as Einstein put it, were doing on the stage. So I myself went to a very small uh, private school. It was a Montessori school. I was, I was there. It was a very rare school too, because it went K all the way up through 12. Um, usually they just go to fifth grade throughout elementary. Um, but I was still there at 12, and so my school didn't have any sports teams, obviously. And uh, so every time that I wanted to play a sport, I had to try out for a rec or another school's team. And I had done that with soccer. I had done that with uh, basketball. And um, I really, really wanted to play football. That was, that was the big dream. I really wanted to play football. And I was, yeah, did you grow up sort of playing you know, front yard, backyard football? Was this like a neighborhood game? Uh, yeah, why we were you play, so enamored with football? Yeah, absolutely. We would organize uh, games between neighborhoods quite a bit. And oftentimes I was playing against kids that were like junior varsity and stuff and like no one could touch me. I was super arrogant when it came to football, but I was seriously really good. And the only problem there was my mom. Anytime there were tryouts, she would, I would beg her to take me and she would agree. And then something would always mysteriously come up and I wouldn't get to go to the tryouts. So after about the third or fourth time of that happened and I realized that obviously she didn't want me playing football. How this ties back into the ballet gala was that when I was watching it, a light bulb went off in my head and I, and I came up with the idea that I would go to my mom and I would tell her, look, if you will really take me to the football tryouts, 
I would be willing to take ballet lessons. And I, my idea behind that was I thought that she would see that I was incredibly serious and that my resolve was unbreakable because I was willing to do something as embarrassing as uh, take ballet lessons just to play football. And so I went home and I, I, I gave my mom that proposition and she kind of looked at me like I was crazy, but uh, she shook her head and, and agreed. Um, all the while I'm thinking like, oh, what is my mom thinking of me now that, you know, that I asked about ballet lessons. But um, later I would find out that she was trying to hold back her enthusiasm because she was through the roof that I was, I was going to take ballet lessons. And I would later find out why uh, that was because she had been a dancer herself before I was born because I was, I was way late uh, coming to the party. I have a uh, three older siblings, two sisters and a brother. The closest is my brother and he's about eight years, eight years my senior. Um, and so by the time that I came around, uh, my mom had given up trying to get her kids to dance because she had tried it with all my other siblings and they didn't take to it for whatever reason. So, so did she dance um, like with a company or was this just something that she had taken lessons growing up? What, what was her background like? Yeah, yeah. She did dance with a few companies. She danced with uh, Hartford Ballet. She danced with a company that I think doesn't exist anymore called Ballet Fantas out in California. She also danced with um, a company in Germany. All of this had been hidden from you. You were unaware at age 12 that your mother had this sort of dance. Yeah, I had no idea. No clue. So uh, you, you went and saw Life Chance uh, at the Coger Center, I'm assuming. Um, at the Coger Center. That, that's where they do it these days. Um, I think they've always done it here at the Coger Center. And uh, you were, that, that light bulb went off. You remember that uh, I, I grew up always hearing about Lynn Swan, the exactly. wide receiver, having done ballet. And that's why he was such an athletic leaper, you know, um, but did you know any dancers like in the community? Was this idea of doing dance completely foreign to you? Like that you? Oh, one hundred percent foreign. Yeah, I didn't know. I didn't know anybody. I had. I think when I was about, probably around the same time I saw that documentary, I was a. I was one of the party kids in uh, D. Crump Ebony uh, School of Dance. They're Nutcracker, but all I did was the party scene. I didn't watch any of the dancing afterwards, and I don't even know if I don't know the level or really what they had going on there. But I remember being in a party scene. That was that was my the closest I came to uh to seeing ballet, but I didn't really So you went um how did you end up uh with Rodenko Pavlovich? Um so So um my mom uh after I I gave her that proposition, she immediately, unbeknownst to me, she immediately started scouring the yellow pages a long time ago. Remember that thing? And uh, she, she was uh, scouring the phone book and looking up schools um, basically within a one hour radius of, of where we lived. And uh, she went and visited all of them. And I guess ultimately she wound up liking Rodenko uh, or Pavlovich School of Dance the most um, and thought that there was really good training there. So she brought me in about a week later and <laughs> we, we walked in the door and uh, we were greeted by this, um, this little European man with a strong accent. And he said, can I help you? In a kind of snooty way, like we were some lost people walking in the wrong place. And my mom, without hesitation, she said, yes, this is my son and I want you to consider him for a scholarship. And he looked like he had seen a ghost because my, I guess my mom was uh, pretty, pretty forward and, and, and self-assured and brazen with her approach. And he said, well, we don't give scholarships. And she said, well, you haven't seen my son. And he looked like he saw three ghosts. <laughs> oh, man, I'll never forget that day. Um, <laughs> and he was clearly taken aback. And uh, he paused for a moment. And then he said, well, all right, I'll have a look at him. And we went in the studio. I had some like gym shorts on and some socks, a big shirt. And uh, he gave me uh, a series of, series of exercises to follow him on, which, and, which I would later learn was bar exercises. And uh, after about 20 minutes, we came back out, and started talking to my mom. He said, 
basically something along the lines of his legs are okay. He has decent turnout, all of which I don't know what he's talking about. But then he said, but his feet are terrible. And I'm, I'm, and I just looked down at my feet and I remember thinking like, I have 10 toes like everybody else. Like, what does he mean? <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, um, but later, obviously I would learn what he meant as far as the aesthetic and, and the line that dancers are supposed to have. And that was something, one of the things I would have to work on throughout my career. But uh, going back to that moment, um, he said, his feet are terrible. And if he wants to come on scholarship, he'll have to come six days a week. And my mom just looked at me like, well, what are you going to do? And I don't know what possessed me other than the love of football to say yes, but I, I said, okay. And um, that's how I got started. I started coming six days a week. Um, initially, it was about, I think, about an hour and a half class every day, uh, two classes on Saturday. And then the time and the hours spent in the studio just kept increasing. Rehearsals got added, extra classes got added. Before I knew it, I was in the studio much more than I was, you know, playing backyard football games, working on my initial uh, initial thrust to get into to ballet. I, I didn't come to that realization really until uh, probably about a year, maybe a year and a half in when uh, one of my friends, uh, I was leaving, he said, we're, you know, we're organizing a game tomorrow at like after school, you're gonna come, you're gonna be there, right? And I said, no, I got dance. And he said, man, you always got dance. You're always there. And I said, no, I'm not. And he said, yes, you are. And then I really thought about it and I was like, oh my gosh. I went from spending an hour there to spending four hours there, five hours there, sometimes there all day. And I was like, what is going on? Like, what happened? And um, basically, uh, by that time it was too late. I, I had fallen in love with it uh, without even knowing. And um, I would say the thing that um, most enveloped me about it was the fact that I wasn't good at it because <laughs> I, um, I had been good at anything that I tried and put my mind to, to that point, whether it be school or athletics or karate or anything, I always excelled and quickly. But ballet was another story. It went a lot slower than I initially thought because when I gave my mom the proposition of taking ballet, I initially thought that I would take it for a month or two, become a master, wipe my hands of it, and then just concentrate on football. But ballet had much, uh, much different plans for me. Um, I was not inherently talented in it as I was uh, with many other things. And so um, I guess, I don't know if it's an astrology thing, me being a Leo, but I'm a perfectionist and I hate to lose. But um I just would dig, dive deeper and deeper into uh, into ballet. The, the more frustrated I became with it, I was renting every video I could from the library, checking out every book, studying the history, because I wasn't going to let it stump me. Do you think that part of the challenge was that you came so late to it? I realized that 12 in the grand scheme of somebody's life is very young, but uh, most people who become professionals like yourself have started earlier than that. Uh, do you think that it was part of the being late or were there other challenges that you were finding that you were needing to overcome that made it so hard, you know, that you can see from looking back at this point in your career? Um, I think, well, I think my age definitely played a big part in it. I mean, that was one of the other things that R Rodenko, Mr. Pavlovich said when I, when I first uh, got offered the opportunity to come on scholarship. He said six days a week, and he'll be studying with kids who've already been taking ballet six and seven years at this point. I think the way he said everything was kind of trying to discourage me, but uh, that was probably, again, the Leo and me or something, but that's pr probably part of the reason I, I said okay so quickly. Aside from my age, he, he was right. My insteps and my the dexterity in my ankles and feet were not uh, very conducive to to uh, the aesthetics of of ballet, the box that um, of criteria that ballet uh, necessitates. But so that was definitely an uphill battle from the start. Um, maybe among a few other things, but ballet is not. I would say it's really not easy for anyone because it's just it's just not 
natural. <laughs> it's so, so many of the, the things, just the way we hold our, uh, position our feet and use our bodies. So much of it is, is just counter intuitive to, you know, what we normally would do. Um, so you're literally reteaching your body every moment that you're, 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 you're doing it. So age did play a factor, but ballet is just hard as hell <laughs> anyway. So starting at 12 with the Pavlovich Dance Studio, can you talk about uh, what happened next? So you, you eventually moved out of the classroom and onto the stage, not that you ever stopped taking classes, but uh, can you talk to us about, you know, that trajectory? Yeah, well, you know, out of the classroom onto the stage actually happened fairly quickly. Um, within my first year, uh, I was being used in um, some of the company productions of Columbia Classical Ballet. My first solo was uh, in The King and I, and uh, I, was, I was one of the, the King's sons, and I had a solo, and um, it was actually written up in, in the newspaper. I had, a, I had a good review. That was my first ever review back when I was, I think I was still, uh, might have been just turned 13 by that time. Yeah, I, I continued to do um, some of the company productions, obviously in, you know, minor or more kids, kid-oriented roles, but doing things that were quite advanced, I would say, uh, choreographically for my age, despite not being all that talented. <laughs> but I, I, what I, where I lacked in, in talent, I, I definitely more than made up for in, in work ethic. And after about a year and a half, I ended up getting a scholarship to the Kirov Academy of Ballet in Washington, D.C. And um, that's when I was uh, faced with the crossroads um, because going there year round would mean that I was really committing myself to ballet and, you know, giving up football, the football dreams altogether, or at least postponing them until uh, later. And I decided obviously on that route and, um, with a asterisk, I told myself if I wasn't where I wanted to be by 21, that I would stop, go to college, train really hard, play college ball, and then work my way into the NFL. However, I had to get there. But yeah, so I went to Kirov Academy of Ballet uh, for the next three years. I graduated with honors, and my first job uh, landed me in Chicago with the Joffrey Ballet of Chicago. I was an apprentice. I spent, it was a difficult first year. There's, I think in a lot of ways, uh, I mean, this is not only relative to ballet. I think uh, pretty much any profession, there's always a kind of a learning curve and kind of a, a jump, a gap and a growth phase when you transition from school into an actual profession. So it was a rough year and I left that behind and joined American Ballet Theater's second company, where I also spent a year. That year was wonderful, but uh, ultimately I decided that it wasn't the place for me at the time and went on to join Orlando Ballet. And I would spend the next three years of my career there, dancing as a principal dancer, before coming to Washington Ballet, where I spent the bulk of my career, nine years. And um, for these past couple years I've well yes it's been two years just now I've been a independent freelance dancer. So can we talk about the path that not just you but dancers take in that you graduated from essentially high school which is the the academy right so you you took schoolwork while you were there but dancing uh, essentially in the classroom um, a lot uh, is my understanding is that right so you you would you would get a, do um, you end up with a high school degree, but then also while sort of dancing um, with other company members full-time, how, how does that sort of academy? Uh, of Academy, no, there's, there's no, there's no company there. It's, it's purely uh, a ballet boarding school. It's, I would say maybe it's something akin to like, uh, like fame, like the fame school, like LaGuardia. So those are like performing arts. So they, they encompass a lot of different things, but this is strictly, it was strictly for Baganova Russian ballet technique. Um, so basically my typical day would be wake up, uh, 6 45, you know, brush my teeth, shower, whatever, 
quickly have breakfast from 7 to 7.15. First period was 7.20. So I'd have first and second period. And then I'd have about I'd have a 30-minute break or so to get ready for ballet. Have about a four-hour block. And then go back for, uh, I think I had like three or four more periods after that. And then have dinner. Um, and yeah, that was my life for, for about three years. And yes, graduated high school there. Um, and then they prepare you. In theory, right, they prepare you for auditions, they help you find companies, uh, or are you on your own to sort of get that set of auditions that got you the place with Joffrey in Chicago? Yeah, it. you know, you were, for the most part, on your own. Um, I had to reach out to the companies, contact them, go to auditions, you know, take a train there, or a plane there, or a bus, whatever. It would be it's possible to get letters of recommendation sometimes from, you know, certain teachers and stuff there, but the preparation, the preparation for the auditions really ended, began and ended in the classroom. It was really, they prepared you physically and, and artistically maybe, but um, as far as helping, helping to bridge that gap, there wasn't much help there, which is actually something that, uh, I want to help change as far as ballet schools, um, just in general. That's another conversation. You became an apprentice. So it is typical, if I understand this correctly, that when you first join a professional company, you are, there's like echelons, right? It's, it's like a tiered system. That's um, correct. And you start off at the bottom and then you work your way up. So what does it mean to be an apprentice in a, in a professional company? Um, so in that company, they had... Um, Apprentice was just below the quarter ballet. So I was all the way in the main company, but not, uh, it's kind of like a, a paid intern in the company, I would say. Um, below that would be something like a trainee. They're not paid, but you know, they get to maybe participate a bit in company productions. And then there's uh, maybe a company will have a studio company or a second company, which they do their mostly their own productions or sometimes they supplement the quarter ballet, but they're, they're removed. So I was part of the company, but like I said, on the, on the bottom rung. And then when you went to uh, ABT's uh, second tier, you were a full member of the core? No, ABT, I joined their second company. Now American Ballet Theater um, is one of the premier companies in the entire world. Um, but definitely in the top two in the U.S. between San Francisco Ballet and ABT. Um, and some could argue in the top three with New York City Ballet, depending on your taste. But um, so it was on a, already on a different echelon than Joffrey Ballet. Um, Joffrey Ballet had, was a good company, had a good reputation, but ABT is a, uh, another cut above. So no, I went to their second company and I got to do some work with the company, but no. We were our own unit. We would go on our own tours. And um, yeah, it was basically a miniature company that's designed to uh, basically for really young, green, more green professionals, if you will, to uh, get more of that professional experience so that they're ready to be placed in the quarter ballet or in the full company. Because once you're in the full company, there's, there's, you know, no one's holding your hand. It's just, you're expected to know everything, pick everything up really quickly and uh, just be able to jump right in with everybody seamlessly. And there's not, especially in a company like ABT, there's very little rehearsal time. So you, um, yeah, <laughs> it's like, uh, I guess it, it would be akin to like a, a, a first time driver with, who hasn't had many lessons like trying to get on the highway the first time you just don't want to do that uh well unless well some people are ready to do that i don't want to say that nobody is but um usually usually there's a there's a bit of a gap and so you toured with the, their second company is that right for that year yeah yeah that? um Can you talk about the tour experience because the tour experience is different from being in a home theater for the bulk of your work in any case, ABT doesn't truly have a home theater. It's always kind of a touring company. They they have a season every year, of course, at the Met, but 
they're always going off different places, city center or California, just all over the place. And it was much the same for us. Sometimes we were performing at the Guggenheim or sometimes we did a residency with North Carolina School of the Arts or Marymount Manhattan or, uh, but the best part, of, the best tour obviously for us was going to Costa Rica. We got to perform in a theater there in uh, San Jose. At, um, I wasn't 19, I was turning 19 soon. And um, to be there at, at that age and, and, you know, performing on, in a, a real theater, uh, really beautiful theater at that was definitely a great experience. Um, the tour life, how it differs, I mean, basically you're, you, you just have to, to budget. You get per diem, but, you know, you have to budget wisely so that you're able to uh, take care of all your meals and not have a bunch of extra expenditures outside of what you would normally have. You don't want to, you don't want to, <laughs> you don't want to, you know, pay. It should be a paid vacation more or less rather than you're paying to be on vacation. Although of course you're still working, but I say vacation because you're getting to uh, see and experience, you know, different cultures and new things. And, and uh, so that's the way I try to look at it as an opportunity. Um, in like a mini vacation. Is it hard physically to have to do the travel? Um, because you're the, what you do on stage is so athletic and, and, and take so much. And then to sleep in a different bed, to get on a bus or a plane or driving in a car or whatever, does that, is that part of the challenge or were you at such an age in which that didn't really affect you? Oh, at that age, yeah, <laughs> nothing, nothing made a difference. Like I could, I could sleep on the concrete, wake up and, you know, go on stage. Like, but now is a completely different story. Um, and obviously, I, I, you know, as I got older, I toured a lot more. Um, and I would say the biggest challenge um, touring, especially internationally, is just adjusting to the time, knowing when to go to sleep and, and actually getting to sleep when you should get to sleep and waking up when you need to wake up. And also dealing with, um, you know, just tight muscles from traveling, like all the lactic acid tends to build up. So especially if you have to get on a plane right after rehearsal or dancing, um, which is usually what I like to do because, you know, you pretty much lose a day if you're traveling internationally anyway, and um, things get out of your body quickly. So I like to, to really punch it right before uh, I have to travel. And, but that leads to really tight muscles and lactic acid buildup. So what I found has been super helpful for me is uh, compression socks, compression sleeves, full leg sleeves. Um, and it's also super necessary for me to stretch about every three, three or so hours on a flight um, if I'm traveling internationally. Thankfully, most of the time they're overnight flights, so I can, you know, go back and everyone's sleeping and, and get a good stretch in. And that helps a lot. Do you make Otherwise, some interesting friends on the airplane when people catch you doing it? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, there's always, I mean, yeah, there's always people that, that'll just kind of stare for a while and they're like trying to figure me out, like, what is he, what does he do? And then they'll finally work up the, work up the nerve to ask me like, oh, are you, um, are you an athlete or are you, you play soccer or? Are you, are you, some people have guessed dancer. That's, it's really rare, but every once in a while they do. They're like, do you run track? Um, yeah, I've gotten a lot of things, but yeah, usually, usually it's just like a period where people are just kind of staring, but um, I'm not shy because I just, I know I, it's necessary for me. I got to do what I got to do to uh, keep moving. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to function off the plane. Um, so you went from uh, the that second company at ABT to Orlando Ballet, and you were one of the leads. So yeah. is, yes, that seems like a, a pretty quick ascension. Uh, up. What is what is life like? How does it differ to be sort of a lead in a company versus in just the core? Um, yeah, it was a quick ascension. Um, it was coming off the heels of, of me winning the silver medal at uh, the USA International Ballet Competition. So coming off the heels of that, I had a lot of different offers um, from a lot of different companies and that's what led me to, uh, to leave American Ballet Theater because I, I, some of those offers were providing me with opportunities to dance in a, um, in a much higher capacity than, uh, than I would there and much sooner, obviously. 
the the main differences are as a principal obviously you have a lot of responsibility because you more often than not you are carrying most of the ballet your your most of the ballet centers around you and you have to um, tell the story uh, in a convincing way but also the dancing the dancing gets more difficult you're also the partnering relationships with um, that your counterparts get more difficult everything pretty much just gets more difficult ex with the exception of having to um, having to be together with everyone in the quarter ballet the most important thing is is a sense of togetherness you you need to do the steps with the same timing the same intention and um the same feeling as everyone around you and the same uh the same lines everything needs to be uniform but as a principal dancer or someone who's going to dance solos on stage it is what you make it of course there are certain constraints choreographically and things that need to be respected as far as uh classicism but at the same uh but at the same time there's a great deal more freedom there because it's just you on stage and it's what you bring to those roles artistically and your choices that uh that make the performance can you describe what you think makes you unique as a dancer in these solo roles Hmm. What makes me unique in solo roles? Because that's a, that's what what I'm hearing you say is that when you're a principal, you're either doing something solo or you're doing something with a partner. But it gives you more of an opportunity to shine as yourself, a little more of your own expression, rather than having to really conform to the needs of the company. So. Um, in those roles, uh, like, how do you see yourself? How do you see yourself as unique? What makes you special? Because people think that you're special. Uh, and when you watch you dance, it, you know, it, it's, it is, it's an amazing thing. But how would you describe yourself? Like, what do you think, um, of, how would you describe what you do that makes it unique and special and different? Um, I don't know how special I consider myself, but the the uniqueness just comes in 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 me being myself i mean obviously all of us are unique all of us have our our own sensibilities and 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 thoughts and opinions and and feelings relative to different things and we all we all react differently we all feel differently and so just being uh being true to that while being true to that being true to the character or whoever whoever or whatever it is that i'm portraying or trying to uh to get across is um always the ultimate aim and i think as long as uh as long as i am i'm true to those those uh those qualities that there's there's no art alternative but to to be unique in that as actors uh people talk about actors inhabiting roles and being in character and all of this kind of thing. And uh, at least to lay people, you hear a lot about dancers and uh, as dancers. Um, but there's a lot of character work, right? So what I'm hearing you say is you have, you're playing a role, be it a swan or a prince or whoever in that ballet and that you are trying to inhabit the character that you're playing and bring that character out through your dance. So is that a, um, can you just expand a little bit more about what it means to, to play different roles and how you not, you have to follow the choreography, but how do you express the character, that, that animal, that, that prince, that whatever you are, um, like how does that shine through? Um, and is that like, how, how do you learn how to do that? Like, is that a part of the, the, the conversation with the choreographer or your training. And, and I, f I find this whole concept really amazing because it is true that, um, you know, no two pieces that I watch of you on the internet are the same because you're playing different characters. Ah, that is a, that's a great question. Um, when it comes to the roles, a lot of it, yes. Um, a lot of the input does come from the choreographer. I mean, if that choreographer is living or the repetitors who are trusted with carrying on that, the, that choreographer's work 
they relay the intended intent and um you know stories and everything behind it and of course i always like to i always like to know what i'm portraying and know the background of it so i like to actually if i don't know the ballet uh or the history of the ballet or um then i like to read up on it and read uh the all of the whys basically because otherwise if if i don't have more and more the older i get the more uh picky i get with this but i um it's really difficult for me to to just dance i have to i have to have a story i have to have dialogue i have to have things in my mind that actually make sense because otherwise there's no way that i can adequately relay that to the audience relay what it is that i'm feeling or trying to relay. some people are able to just dance and not even know what's going on but i'm not one of those people but as far as differences uh that's just it um knowing each character knowing each ballet and um knowing the story and reasoning behind the movements automatically creates the differences if i was going to for example if i'm portraying someone like ali from le corsair who is uh in most versions they refer to him as the slave in my the story that i have in my mind is that maybe he was enslaved but prior to that i i've already made up a story that he was someone who was actually royalty where he was from and that he was enslaved and that conrad the pirate uh the lead in le corsair that the story i have in my mind again is that conrad saved him from being executed and so at that point um uh he ceased to be enslaved but rather he pledged to protect conrad with his life for the remainder of his life and so that's why he follows conrad around rather than he's actually you know conrad's slave um so it's 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 things like that that color and paint my my approach to um to different roles knowing the story creating my own story within that story as the character to influence how i move why i move and and can you talk uh, about what it's like to do the solo uh when it's you know you've got these um, amazing wow moment solos where people start to go you know well it's it's kind of what's hooked you on it where you see somebody do it and you think how do they do that with no wires so you've got <laughs> these incredible moments where you're doing that but then you also have these great moments of uh, choreography with partners. So can you talk about uh, just what it's like to be doing solo on stage where the focus is solely on you? And then um, particularly I feel, uh, and I'm not a ballet expert, but I feel that when I watch ballet that quite often the male dancer is there to uh, bring our attention to the female that he's partnering with and, and make it look as if, you know, this magic is happening. She's floating through the air. She's doing all these wonderful things. And, and the male dancer is there to give her the gift of that attention that, from the audience. So like how those seem like two slightly different things. Can you talk about the differences between your own choreography and what it's like when you're working with a partner? Yeah. Um, well, solos are, as I said before, solos are, are a chance to really just, uh, express yourself obviously again within the confines of the choreography within the confines of the character but other than that it's it's an expression of yourself and um or an expression of yeah an expression of yourself through that character i would say so those those moments are incredibly freeing um i would say that partnering can also be can also feel just as liberating and just as free but it just, it depends on the partnership because, you know, obviously some people click with others more than other people click with them. And it's on so many levels. I mean, because obviously there's timing and musicality, there's approach. And then of course your internal feeling, and then of course your technicality. And so for it to feel that ultimate euphoric liberating uh way all of those 
elements have to come together at the same time and on the same wavelength. And um, when it does, it's that's when the magic truly happens. And it's uh, it just gives you goosebumps when you when you see that. You you know when you see that. You can see a lot of good partnering. I've seen plenty of good partnering, but um, if it doesn't, if not all of those elements are aligned, then it's impressive, but it doesn't go to that next uh, stratosphere, if you will. But um, yeah, the man, the uh, male partner is, is more often than not, almost, I would say 99% of the time in classical ballet, there to to showcase the the female and to um and it's exactly like you said in in often cases to create uh the illusion of floating or flying or weightlessness to basically just uh i guess pay homage to the divine feminine do you talk uh through this elaborate storyline that you create in order to to you know, embody the character with your partner. So do you sort of say, you know, this is the backstory I'm working with, and because often she will have a backstory that interlaces with your backstory. Do you all sort of work these things out together, or is this a very Absolutely. sort of private thing? Absolutely, I think that's that. Um, not everybody does that, but I think that can be a really, truly integral integral part of. Um, really making the partnership sparkle and that just getting that spark because I mean if you're if you're coming from from different perspectives and, and thinking different things then then your feelings and your intent and uh may clash and oftentimes that even though it's a lot of that's internal so more often than not it's actually visible as well um and it may not be visible in the sense that like you know, in an off-putting sense that, oh, that doesn't look good together. But just that there's a, like I said, you know it when you see it, it's not going to be the same as if those two people do have the same intent and, um, you know, thoughts that are coinciding with each other's movement. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very important. It's very, very important. I think that really everyone should, should do that. I said not everybody does, but I, I think that they should. It's like act, it's acting. I mean, two actors. Luckily, they have a script, and the script has what the intent is, why this is happening. It's all laid out there. Um, we still have to act, but if we're not talking about our script, even if it's uh, a lot of it is uh, internalized and in that we had to, you know, expound upon ourselves. If we're not discussing that script then we're missing the plot. We really are. So it's, it's very important. Um, do you have other styles of dance or other art forms that uh, like inspire you that you participate in that you bring into your work as a dancer? Um, I think, I mean, I, I watch, there's pretty much no style of dance that I, I don't enjoy watching. I love dance. I love art in general, and as far as bringing in and incorporating in ballet, I, I think that because, because ballet and art imitate life and vice versa, every experience, every experience is, is useful, and um, pretty much everything gets incorporated. But um, I would obviously, as far as styles of dance go, um, I think some maybe some styles more than others can. Uh, um, no, I try to, I, I, I try to remain a sponge and, and soak up as much as I can. And especially if there's, um, you know, an opportunity to dance uh, something more improvisational or, or contemporary, what have you, then it's, it's really nice to, to try to float between worlds, between uh, different types of dance and, and meld them together in, in a symbiotic relationship that they already share. But yeah, it's, um, there's no shortage of inspiration. Like, I, I get inspired by like <laughs> pretty much anything, but um, especially, uh, especially dance, obviously, but I mean, I get inspired by, by movies, by books, by nature, 
by rivers like there's there's really no shortage of inspiration out there early in this interview we you mentioned um you know wanting to have some advice uh, for how ballet schools could change and how how um young students um you know things that young students just uh, entering their careers might need to know and uh, I feel like the past half hour, you've given nothing but really great advice on how to become an excellent dancer. But is there, is there something that you could talk, uh, you would want to tell people as they're starting their careers? Are there, uh, is there a piece of advice that you wish somebody had told you or something that somebody did tell you that really was invaluable that you want to share with people who are looking to get into this kind of career? Um, let's see. It's hard to distill it down, but um, you're thinking of 12 things I can tell and you're trying to pick one. <laughs> but uh, I would say, especially this day and age, um, it's never ever too early and it's never a bad time to stretch. Um, stretching and not just stretching, I don't know, splits or frog, but stretching in every way possible, especially your your hips and uh feet um is is incredibly helpful um because this profession re requires a lot of dexterity in your lower extremities your upper extremities too but especially your lower extremities so um stretching is is so important and um yeah it it's it makes life a lot easier to to be a ballet dancer if um you're not fighting against your body to make those uh extreme positions um aside from that when you're starting out not just when you're starting out your entire career don't just wait till you're in the studio to work and that again goes along what i was saying with stretching it's never a bad time to stretch it's never a bad time to to work on your craft you don't have to only work on ballet and i think a lot oh i would say almost the whole dance world is is has was force-fed this because of the pandemic but it's something that I, I've been doing from the onset, taking class at home, working at home. And uh, like I have this, you know, ballet bar I built over here. Um, I built that a couple of years ago. A lot of people were like scrambling to like order bars online or like, you know, hold on to their counter. But because people were forced to, to work at home. But I think that um, it's really important. And I hope that people take as a silver lining, take from this pandemic um the benefits of working at home and not just in the studio because you only have so many hours in the studio unless you have a key you only have so many so much time in the studio and there are a lot of things that you can do anytime or at home like i i do uh releves every morning while i'm brushing my teeth it's basically calf raises loads of them so i think that basically what i'm trying to say is that um you can really expedite your progress by by um not limiting your when and where you work and there's also i think stretching obviously is something that you can do actively and you can do passively you can stretch certain things while you're reading a book or watching tv or uh or and the same goes for certain ballet exercises you can do it while you're watching your your favorite program but still be progressing. Um, something that uh, I'm not sure where I where I heard this or where I got it from, but I feel like it was a movie. But in any case, I remember that I would always think about starting where I started and that I started late. And so I saw people were ahead of me. You know, if they were if it was miles, let's say they were let's say they were 50 miles ahead of me. And so every day we're moving forward. So in the studio, we all move one mile that day and then they stop. But I decided I'm gonna be at home, I'm gonna be in the grocery store, I'm gonna be in the library, wherever, continue to work. So I move four miles in that day. The next day they move a mile and I move five. And so eventually I catch up and then overtake them and keep progressing. And I think that mindset is incredibly helpful for this career and incredibly helpful as well for those those kids coming out of school who are transitioning into the professional professional arena and it served me very very well because um like i said 
it's it's a very different experience from being in school and especially i would say especially if you're in a school where you're a standout you receive lots of attention and um you go from that to receiving next to no attention and you're just expected to somehow rise rise up and the most like i said the most one of the most beneficial things is continuing work outside so that you can bridge the gap um obviously uh obviously having a mentor or having um someone to to give you another opinion is is also really really important so seek out whoever is willing to to tell you the truth about yourself and also i think it's really important for young people not to let others words dim their light because that's another thing that I, I see a lot in the transition and again I'll, I'll point out you know people that received a lot of attention a lot of praise and then they go from not receiving much attention at all and oftentimes when they, the attention that they are receiving is a critique and so when you're not receiving much attention and you get a critique it feels like everything you're doing is only bad and of course that's not the case but that's just the nature of the business because of time constraints due to money and what have you, just how it goes. But that's just another important thing that I would I think is really important to relay to to um, people transitioning, starting out. Take everything with a grain of salt. Take it, use it as construction and any other bad feelings, any of that yuck, anything that feels truly negative that's not helpful in allow, helping you to progress, let that fall off shake that off yeah that's that's those are the most important things i would say well thank you so much for the time we're looking forward to hopefully seeing you dance again in the very near future um we're we're all in this pandemic together but uh optimistic that we will find time to make the art again and we can't wait to see you back on the stage thank you so much for having me and and i really hope that that comes to fruition for for all of us too and I definitely look forward to performing again at the Coger Center and, 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 you know, just sharing again with this beautiful Columbia audience. I miss y'all. Well, we miss getting to see you on the stage, too. Thank you very much. Our guest this week on the Coger Center Arts Roundup has been ballet dancer Brooklyn Mack from right here in Columbia, South Carolina. Thank you for the time. Appreciate it. The Coker Center Arts Roundup is produced in part by Garnet Media Group, the student media partnership at the University of South Carolina. Information about tickets and upcoming events can be found at CogerCenterForTheArts.com, the official website for Coger Center tickets. For more information about Garnet Media Group, visit GarnetMedia.org.